This has been a great series. We've been going through the seven deadly sins. And several weeks ago, I revealed to you my two-year-old daughter's sin that she struggles with, and that's gluttony, right? I remember telling you guys, you know, that Ivy wanted her fourth fruit snack at 7 a.m., and this was her response. Okay. Gluttony. Gluttony. The sin of my son is not gluttony. No, no, no. It is anger. Anger is the seven deadly sin that my son struggles with. You saw him on the video announcements earlier. Uh, last week, he ran into a pole because he wasn't paying attention. And he goes, ah, pole. Ugh. I'm going to cut you down. I was like, son, it's not the pole's fault. It's, it's your fault. No, it hit me. Pole. Anger is his sin. I heard a story about two men uh, talking about annoyance, anger, and frustration one night. Late one night, uh, as they're talking, one said, I'll show you the difference. So at 1 a.m., he goes to the phone and dials a number. And he asked, is Jones there? And the man says, no. And they hang up the phone. And the men continue to have this conversation. And another hour goes by, and he says, now I'm going to show you frustration. So at 2 a.m., he dials the same phone number. And the man picks up, and he says, What? And he says, well, is Jones there? And he goes, no, frustrated. Then at 3 a.m., the guy says, now I'm going to show you anger. So he returns to the phone, dials the number a third time and says, hey, this is Jones. Have I got any calls tonight? <laughs> anger. Anger. We all struggle to manage it, keep it under control, and yet we feel as if it's a right or a privilege to express it as we wish without consequence. Uh, it's become an infectious disease that's everywhere. It's in our homes, our cars, on freeways, sporting events, at work, and even at church. It's so bad that some social commentators have said that we live in the age of rage. Frederick Beekner said this, this will be on the screens, of the seven deadly sins, anger is the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor the last toothsome morsel of the pain you're, give, you're given and the pain you're giving back. In many ways, it's a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is what you're wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Psychiatrists call this anger problem LFT, low frustration tolerance. And it claims that most people are walking around and they're ticking time bombs. Uh, they've allowed circumstances, situations, and people to crowd out their ability to tolerate frustrating things. Thus, they're living on the edge and they're ready to erupt at any moment. Uh, Dex asked me the other day, my five-year-old son, if volcanoes are real. And I go, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, volcanoes are real. But he goes, but nobody lives near them. And I go, well, actually, people live by volcanoes. And he goes, but we don't live by volcanoes. I go, no, no, we don't. We won't ever live by volcanoes, right, Dad? And I go, no, we're not going to live by volcanoes. Because why would we live next to something that can erupt at any moment? Molten lava just brewing and boiling beneath the surface. You see where I'm going with this, right? We're all just human volcanoes. Uh, hurts. Pain, resentment, 
anger just boiling beneath the surface, and we can erupt at any time. The Bible speaks a lot about anger. Colossians chapter 3 says this in verse 8, but now you must get rid of all these things, anger, rage, malice, filthy language from your lips. Have you ever been walking like kind of in the dark, maybe in a garage or an attic, maybe in a forest, and you walk into a spider web? Oh, it's the worst moment of your life. You do everything you can to get rid because there's that spider somewhere on that web and it could be somewhere on you. It's terrifying. That's what this word rid here means. Rid yourselves of anger. Do whatever it takes to get rid of it. That's what the word in Colossians means. You must rid yourself of anger and rage. Proverbs 29 says this, A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. It's a quality that we all want, and when we see that kind of patience, we respect it. We respect it. We've all seen someone at the restaurant, and the person in front is just letting them have it. And they just take it with the most grace. And you're like, that's a saint. That's a saint. Psalm 37 says this in the message translation. I love it. Bridle your anger, trash your wrath, and cool your pipes. It only makes things worse. See, the message translation goes for the tone in which it was going to be received when the Bible text was written. And it tries to match that tone to right here, right now. Other translations will, will paraphrase or go word for word literal what it's trying to say. The message goes for tone. Thomas Aquinas, the theologian in the Middle Ages who kind of repopularized the seven deadly sins, uh, he, he broke down wrath's disordered expression into three main categories. The first is this. We can get angry too easily when we're quick-tempered. We can get angrier than we should when our anger is disproportionate to the, the offense. And then number three, we can stay angry too long. This is when it, we go into grudge holding, resentment. And the first type takes the form of irritability, right? Ang anger poisons your mood. It poisons your mood. At where everything is just kind of off. And that's when every little thing sets us off. We feel quarrelsome and contrary. We respond, we respond with the slightest provocation, bickering, rudeness, com complaint, annoyance, cutting remarks, profanity. And the second way is that we get more angry than we should. And the prototypical case of this is the blow-up scene, right? Uh, complete with shouting and the slamming of the door. We... When, when we let anger take over our emotions, we can't even control our arms because doors just slam, right? It, it erupts inside of us, and we, whenever we leave a room, ugh, we shut it way harder than we should. The blow-up is often over a small incident. You ever break a shoelace and drop an F-bomb? Like, woof! In that moment, the shoelace represented your anger, so when it snapped, you snapped. The third way is we can stay angry for too long. We call this resentment. 
And it's often expressed in sullenness, refusal to forgive or to accept reconciliation, fantasizing about vengeance, passive-aggressive tactics, like letting our anger out in relentless pinpricks rather than one mighty blow or a great shout. But we, it's, it's death by little jabs, little comments, that person at work, I'm not going to blow up at him. I'm just going to say at least three mean comments per day, just subtle enough. Death by pinprick. Grudge holding, nurturing resentment. Even for real harm done in the past, it makes us more prone to the first two vicious ways of anger, right? So when resentment, this third way, when we hold on to something long ago, when it smolders beneath the surface, when it begins to heat up inside of us over a long period of time, we go through the day like a snake poised to strike at the first sign of movement. We become quick-tempered. And our anger at the present moment swells to the size of the whole history of harm done. All anger is in danger of rationalization. We rationalize it. But resentment, more than anything, perhaps, can distort our truthfulness of an event. As the saying goes, this will be on the screen, the older I get, the more vividly I remember things that never happened. That's true. We're holding on to that one conflict we had and the things they say, and we spin it the way we want to remember it, where we're just biting our lip, and they're the ones venting their frustration and anger, and we did nothing wrong at all. Follow the trail, the bread the breadcrumbs always lead to loss. Ephesians 4 says this, in your anger, do not sin. And then Paul says this interesting warning, do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not make room for the devil. I think this is important in marriage. When I do marriage counseling with young couples, uh, this is a verse that, that I always share with them. Uh, it's important not to go to bed angry. Don't let the sun go down while you're angry. This is something that Sarah and I have always tried to do in our relationship, even before we were married, that... We're not going to go to bed still mad at each other. It, we, it may be 2.30 a.m., and we're still fighting, arguing, intense fellowship. <laughs> but we're not going to let the sun go down while we're still angry. I believe that the devil prefers the low-rent district of unresolved anger. He will go to bed with us, use our dreams as a rehearsal for what was done to us, and haunt our waking restlessness. He will get up the next morning and go to work on unresolved anger. By the time he's done in the kitchen, he's cooked up a stew of bitterness, spite, prejudice, backstabbing, gossip, abuse, insults, nerves, resentment, rage, tantrums, sulking, attitude. He becomes the CEO of our perspective, and all reality passes through his interpretive grid. Now, everything we see, we filter through what he wants us to filter it. Everybody's out to get us. And before we know it, we're enemy-centered people. Everybody's against me. We see in every person the remnants of the one who wronged us. Our defenses go up. Our quills extend in self-protection. Our looks kill. Our words are daggers. They never saw what hit them. They recoil from us. And the devil insinuates that they are our enemy. Our whole life is organized around being angry, and the devil is the daily chef of the stew that we consume all the time. Anger is deadly. Don't nurse it, rehearse it, 
or disperse it, but curse it. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Even in how we describe our anger speaks to this truth in its destructive nature. What do we say when we acknowledge our outbursts of anger? We say, man, I lost it. In our anger, we feel that we have innately lost something about our humanity. Whenever you lose your temper, you lose. Whenever you lose it, you lose. Much of the bad things that happen in the Bible occurs as a byproduct of anger. In anger, Cain killed Abel. In anger, Jonah refused to obey God. And we're going to be tackling Jonah in a couple weeks here. We all know that we are at our worst when we are the most angry. Every single one of us has said something that we regret in anger. Then we scapegoat our apology to the sin of anger. Now we put our apology and our actions on anger. We don't own it ourselves. We blame it on this thing that's inside of us, right? What I said, I said in anger, I'm sorry. Or, I'm sorry. Not, I said it in anger, my bad, as a way to justify what we said. No, anger is deadly. And like acid in a plastic jug, it destroys the container first. It affects us. It hurts you. Anger isn't accurate. Because not only does it hurt its intended target, but there's so much collateral damage, right? You guys know what collateral damage is? If there's a military strike and you're like, I'm going to get this, you know, this military target, and then we may, it may blow up, but it, it, it kills innocent people. It kills, it, it destroys innocent buildings that were not its intended target. And we say, ah, it's, it's collateral damage. There is so much collateral damage when it comes to anger. Often the recipient of our anger is the, is the wrong person, right? It's usually the person who happens to be the most closest. The, the most available, the most readily wounded is the easiest target within range. The waitress bears the wrath directed at the unsatisfactory efforts of the kitchen, of the chef, right? Uh, the underpaid customer service rep bears the frustration directed at the stonewalling healthcare insurer. And the slight misstep of an older child receives the pent-up explosion of a parent worn down by two hours of dealing with a whining two-year-old. Have you ever been guilty of lashing out at an intermediary because you could not find or fight the real offender, the real person you're upset with? It's collateral damage. Parents of young kids, I'm going to talk to you right now, and I'm also talking to me. When children ignore our orders to come for, to dinner, to take their bites, to get in the bath. And th when they ignore it, they don't. And you ask several more times, and the lava is beginning to rise, right? You feel it. The house is getting hotter. It's getting hot in here. It may well be because they are just happily preoccupied with their play. But we as parents read this as a flagrant act of contemptuous disrespect. They are intentionally being naughty right now. Maybe it's not willful disobedience. 
being, maybe they're maybe just being caught up in the moment. All else fades away because they're focused in on this. It probably doesn't deserve the words which you said and the manner in which you said them. Listen, I'm guilty of this too. You guys think that my family is immune to this because I'm a pastor? You think Dex is quoting Bible verses when I get angry with him? That when we discipline, we hold hands and we sing Amazing Grace together first. That's not how it goes down. We're all in this together. Choose to see what's best in the other because our anger overflows to those nearest to us. So the collateral damage of anger, it, first is ourself, right? It's putting acid in a jug. It will destroy itself. Then it's those closest to us, those in close proximity to us, whether they're the ones that we're upset with or not. And then worst of all, our anger hurts God. Look at Matthew 25. The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Good or bad. This is a picture of Tom Brady. That's it. That's the whole sermon. I don't like Tom Brady. Tom Brady is like, like has a perfect face, okay? <laughs> He's won like five or six Super Bowls. And last year, his team not only defeated my team in primetime Monday night football on a last-second field goal when we were 10-point <laughs> underdogs, um, but they beat us in the AFC Championship game and stole our Super Bowl right from our grips. I don't like Tom Brady. So you know what? I'm going to just, just going to vent some of the anger that uh, arises in me. And so, yeah. What's up, Tom? Looked accurate to me. Look at that perfect jaw. He's got like the jaw of Thor. Not anymore. Yeah. What do you think about that, Tom? Can you deal with this? That one took a little bit longer than I wanted it to. <laughs> Left-handed. <laughs> Right-handed. <laughs> yeah, Tom, what do you think about that? <sighs> Tom Brady, take that. But unleashing my wrathful lava towards the person I'm angry with, Tom Terrific, number 12. As an angry person, it feels good. That felt great. My friend Ronson loves Tom Brady. It's like his best friend, mythically. And uh, it feels good to vent it, but it's not right. It's not best. It hurts more than him. It hurts God. And when you take away the picture of Tom, we see the picture of Jesus. And no, I'm not saying that Brady has the face of God. Um, I'm saying Matthew 25, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Anger's inaccurate. It may strike the target, but it's going to wound others, including yourself. Garrett Kaiser confesses that he confesses this in his book on anger. My anger has often seemed out of proportion. That is, too great or too little. 
more often too great for the occasion that gave rise to it. My anger has more often distressed those I love than it has afflicted those at whom I was angry. Have you found that to be true? According to the American Psychological Association, the underlying message of highly angry people is, things gotta go my way. Perhaps we even lash out at others around us because we feel impotent at shaking our fists towards God. What do we do? How do we solve this? Let's, first, let's get really practical. Let's do a thought experiment real fast, okay? I want you to think of a recent incident where you lost your temper, okay? Shouldn't be too hard. Maybe it was with a coworker. Maybe it was with a spouse. Maybe it was with children. Maybe it was with a spouse or spouse. Now, think about that incident. Do you find yourself still feeling resentful about, about it? Do you feel like your outburst was justified? Like if someone was watching the videotape of the event, rather than our edited version that we like to tell ourselves, would they arrive at the same conclusion that you were justified? If we are still resentful, can we stop playing the tapes over and over again in our heads? It's choosing instead to play something else when that thought comes up. When that incident comes up to my mind and those feelings awake again in my soul and the lava starts to brew and get, getting close to erupt and it's affecting me and those around me, play a different tape. Think about a good moment with that person. Think about something joyous. Think about your kids Think about Jesus. Even further, can we destroy the lingering evidence of the offense so that we aren't constantly reminding us, ourselves of it? You ever have that song that just, it remind, it, it, that song reminds you of the event. And, it, and when you listen to it, that first chord chimes in. It awakens all this stuff all over again and you're back to where you were. Don't listen to that song anymore. It's, it's, not, it's not good for everyone else, and it's not good for your soul. Sometimes we need to give ourselves a time out, gain perspective. When, when my son loses it in anger, go to time out. <clears throat> but you know what? When he comes to that time out, sweetest boy I've ever seen. <laughs> Sometimes we need to do that. The countering virtue to the vice of anger is forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32 says this, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. It's true. Whatever they did to you, you're not as innocent as Jesus was. Anne Lamott, in her book, Traveling Mercy, says this, Not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. I am going to get him. Kills you. Anger says you owe me. At the root of anger, it, it, it's, it's you are owed something. And, and, and they, maybe it's an apology. Listen, you're right. They probably do owe you an apology. But whether or not they ever give that to you, you're giving them power in your life 
for lava to overflow and to destroy your surroundings. They do owe you. Forgiveness says no. Some of you are thinking, no way, I can't. I can't forgive them. If I forgive them, I'm letting them off the hook. I'm awarding bad behavior. They'll think that I'm weak. But if you just, if you stay in that lane, that pride, right? Here's pride at the root of this. If you stay in that lane, you'll die a bitter old man or a bitter old woman. Here's an acronym for life, and I, I just believe this. When Jesus says he gives us life, life to the fullest, I think it's living in freedom every day. Freedom from anger. Freedom from the wounds that people did to us. And I, I think this, I think this is a skip that we often, this is a step we often for, uh, skip in forgiveness. We need to determine what they owe us. You don't need to bring it to them, but you need to acknowledge it to yourself and before God. They owe me an apology. And, and, and that's what they owe me. And that, because they owe me, anger's rising up. You know what they've done. They owe you. Often we forgive generally, not specifically. You might be going through the motions of forgiveness. But you're not experiencing the freedom of forgiveness. We say, well, I've moved on. Let me say this. Moving on isn't forgiveness. You've got to articulate to yourself and to God what the offense was. What do they owe you? And once you identify it, let me say it this way. General forgiveness doesn't heal specific hurts. Well, I, I forgive them. Okay. You can speak in that kind of generality, and it might be a great first step. But real forgiveness is I identify what they did, what, what they owe me. I label it. I release it to God. We have a prayer meeting every morning at 8.45, and as we were sitting there uh, talking about today and praying for this morning and praying for people in our church, families that are going through tough times, there was just an overwhelming sense that, that this is something that we struggle with, this resentment that actually destroys us, that anger affects our homes. And we described it this way in, in this meeting. Corey Ten Boom describes uh, forgiveness like a medieval sexton. Sexton is the guy who, who climbs up to the tower of the Middle Ages and he rings the bell, right? He rings the bell on the watchtower. And as, as he rings it, the reverberations and the sound of the, of the clanging goes all throughout the entire town. Forgiveness is releasing the rope. Now there will still be reverberations but they will become slower, less often, and more faint. Some of us, as we need to identify what they owe us, and we look at that rope, and then we drop it. We release it to God. Forgive, just as in Christ God forgave you. This may feel like an overwhelming thing, but we look to Jesus. Jesus on the cross, he says, come to me. We say crucify him. He says, Father, forgive them. I want to invite Noe and the band to come up. In the mid-1990s when I was in high school, a movie came out with Tom Hanks, Forrest Gump. 
It's a great movie. Forrest Gump loved Jenny. From childhood, they were bound in friendship. Jenny had a rough life. Jenny's father abused her. She took her anger inward, and she almost destroyed her life with drugs, alcohol, running, hiding, letting anyone use her body. She came to the brink of suicide, and Forrest loved her still. And one day, as a seeking adult, she returns home to the house she grew up in, to the house of her broken childhood. And in anger, the anger that she had turned inward suddenly erupted, and she begins to hurl rocks uncontrollably at this house. She threw every rock she could find, all the strength that she could muster, every ounce of energy she had, and then she fell in the road. And Forrest walks beside her, kneels down next to her, and says these profound words, sometimes there's just not enough rocks. And in that moment, Jenny began a new life. God painfully watches our attempt to resolve our anger as we throw rocks at each other, stones at others. And God stands ready in any moment to take us up in divine arms, to recognize the pain done to us, receive the raw anger into himself, and redeem it for good. Only God can do this. Only God can redeem it and use it for good. He can. For those of you holding on to resentment, Bitterness, anger, no matter which stage is it, is it getting angry too easily, is it getting angry too often, or is it allowing anger to turn into resentment? God, I pray in Jesus' name that we would replace anger with forgiveness, that we would be the people who extend grace, unmerited favor when it's not deserved. And God, we pray that for all the men in this place, God. As, as we honor the men in our lives this Father's Day, we pray that, that we would be men of peace, that we would be men of patience, that we would be men of forgiveness, that the strongest moves towards reconciliation first, that we'd be the first to move. We'd be the first to take that step towards one another rather than away from one another. So God, thank you that you make beautiful things out of us, out of this molten lava mess inside of our souls, that you make things beautiful. You make things good. Replace anger and rage and malice and wrath with grace and love and forgiveness in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we declare the goodness of God and the way in which he makes beautiful things out of you and I? I wonder if I'll ever find my way I wonder if my life could really change I